0: Well, thanks so much for inviting me to your uh, beautiful campus. Uh, And thank you for that uh, great introduction. Uh, I once, when I was in government, worked for someone who was uh, very controversial. And whenever he was about to give a speech and had a nice introduction, he would say, I must be in the wrong room. (laughs) Because normally, all he heard was uh, a series of unwelcoming words. But these are welcoming words, and it's a pleasure to be here. My topic is the relevance of Plato, the Republic, and I'll talk about Plato generally, but more particularly the Republic uh, as we go along. Um, I begin by reminding us of Plato's importance, which is something we shouldn't take for granted. One way to see this importance uh, is to recognize that Plato and Aristotle were the first truly intelligent human beings (laughs) I've got something to add to that, but maybe I should just quit. (laughs) Were the first truly intelligent human beings to write extensively about all the important human phenomena. Love, pride, politics, and rational thought itself. So it's no surprise because they are the first truly intelligent human beings to write extensively about all the important human phenomena, it's perhaps no surprise that they get 90% of the things right that we can know reasonably, and perhaps a lot more than 90%. Now, Plato, I think, becomes especially relevant when you look at these human phenomena and ask what human happiness truly is, a question that you can't wriggle out of very easily, much as you might try to ignore it, or much as you might simply take it for granted. To take Plato at all seriously is to be haunted by the questions that he raises because, among other things, they are these vital questions of human happiness. If you ignore this question or you take an answer for granted, you might be making a decisive or even permanent mistake. Equal freedom, equal natural rights, which we all enjoy, obviously does not tell you how to use your freedom well. It's this question of how best to use your freedom, or how to live. It's in this question in particular that you should recognize your ignorance, as Socrates suggests in Plato's Apology, that you should recognize all that you implicitly take for granted. I think you can see with only the smallest reflection that this question of what my happiness is, or what my goals are, is a difficult question, but also a very, of course, significant question. What is happiness? Is it wealth, Bill Gates, or Mark Zuckerberg, or a lesser version? Is it statesmanship, Churchill, or Lincoln? or a lesser version? Is it moral virtue and excellence, courage, moderation, wisdom, justice, and the rest of Aristotle's list in the ethics? Is it art, poetry, beauty, Shakespeare, Mozart, Jane Austen, or some lesser version? Is it piety and purity or holiness, A saint's life, a life fully oriented around belief. Is happiness a life devoted to romantic love? Is it a life devoted to pleasure? Is it a scientific life, Einstein, Newton? Is it a full philosophic life, Plato, Aristotle? Or is it some lower mixture of some or all of these, let's say health, ...plus domestic contentment. The rank and the desirability... ...of these goals... ...are not self-evident... ...even if we bumble along and treat them this way. And that's connected... ...sooner or later... ...to Plato's discussion of the good in the republic. For as he says in Book 6, whatever else, we all seek what we believe to be good. But what is good? We all seek what we believe to be good. That, in a sense, is the guiding statement of the republic. And the next question, of course, is how should we live wherever common choice is necessary? What's the best form of government? And also, where do the individual good and the common good necessarily conflict? So Plato is central in exploring all of these questions, the most important questions, and also in reaching some practical conclusions, more than might be evident at first sight. Hence, the importance, relevance of Plato and of the Republic. Now, let me turn to the question of how Plato proceeds in examining his topics. How does he proceed? Plato always examines a topic, say courage, in a whole setting, in a whole context in a whole setting or context that also tells you something about the topic. That's characteristic of Plato's philosophical understanding. And that may be the chief reason why he writes dialogues. So this also means that the conversation, the dialogue, is never merely an intellectual discussion, but also a conversation with practical intention. It's not merely to examine what courage is or what pleasure is, but also to see how to seek moderate pleasure or true courage. So even when the dialogues seem to be inconclusive intellectually, as many of them do, they also, by and large, moderate excess. Moderate excess. The opening scenes of the dialogues, by the way, are central to the context and central for setting the limits within which Plato then goes on to examine a topic. The opening scenes are not window dressing. In particular, they show the phenomena he explores, courage, justice, whatever, they show the phenomena he explores as they are at work in actual activity. Another way to say this is that any topic that he discusses in the dialogues is oriented to is in a sense in terms of the world of the title character or the world of the title situation. Any topic in addition to being one that he explores intellectually also means to show the interplay, another way of making the same point, also means to show the interplay between our experiences and our opinions. For example, the republic examines justice generally, but it puts it in a political world. How just? How just can a form of government, a regime, which is the Greek word translated republic, how just can a form of government actually be? Can a purely just form of government exist? Can the political realm be fully just? The discussion of justice is oriented to this question, and you get your first sense of that from the title. To go on with this, what does it mean that justice in the republic, which is the topic, is discussed in the context of a torch race honoring the non-Athenian gods? What does it mean that it's placed in a context in which Socrates initially does not want the conversation, but it's in a certain playful but nonetheless real way pressed on him or forced on him? Both of these facts tell us that there may be some conflict, may be some conflict, some division between piety towards the gods and politics, and especially some conflict between philosophy, what the philosopher would rather do on his own, and politics. The opening scene means to suggest those limits. To go on again, what does it mean that in book one several silent interlocutors are introduced? In fact, near the beginning of book one. Plato mentions, Socrates mentions, that there are others there at the conversation. He says who they are, he says something about them, and they never talk. Why does he bother? Why does he bother? What does that mean? Obviously, to fully understand any one of Plato's dialogues, one needs to have a coherent explanation of each of those problems. And coherent means that each of your explanations for any of them needs to fit with all of your other explanations. In the example I just gave, one might say, when you look at the characters named, and then how they're described, it means that Plato's discussion of justice is abstracting from certain things that would otherwise be important politically. Neighborhoods, for example. Fathers and sons, for a deeper example. Remember now the discussion of communism in Book 5, where that relation, in a way, would disappear. Somehow he abstracts, in his discussion, from what might normally be important political facts which are not essential to justice. Or at least that's my explanation. You may in time have a better explanation. So, the opening scene and the title and other elements of the drama Why these examples, not those examples? Why these oaths here, not somewhere else? Why these particular oaths? Why Socrates has his own private oath, by the dog? All of these elements of the drama give us the context or the standpoint within which the topic being discussed comes to life gives us the context or the standpoint within which the topic being discussed comes to light. There could be another context and another standpoint in which other elements of the topic comes to life. But the title, the dramatic details, the opening scenes give us a sense of this particular context within which the topic comes to life. One place another but still related point, one place the question of happiness or the best way of life, and therefore again Plato's relevance, shows itself clearly, is precisely if one looks at the initial impetus behind any dialogue. It's an important part of Plato's procedure that each dialogue begins with a particular predicament or a particular concrete, usually, perplexity. And this question of happiness or the best way of life often shows itself clearly precisely through this initial impetus. So, for example, there are several dialogues in which fathers want advice about their sons. Their rotten sons are making them nervous and worried, and they go to Socrates for some advice. The Lockies would be an example. The Theages would be an example. The Euthydemus would be a good example. Young men want advice from Socrates about politics or love, young men themselves. One sees this in the Lysis or the Protagoras. Others want to converse with him generally, the Republic, or also at the beginning, Cephalus's concerns about the relation of justice and death or an afterlife. In other cases, Socrates himself wants to know if anyone young beautiful and intelligent, has appeared on the scene when he's been absent fighting in wars. The Carmedes is an example of that. So the initial impetus, the initial perplexity, sometimes an initial practical perplexity, is also central in understanding the orientation of any dialogue and obviously also central in understanding the relation between the dialogues and this question of happiness or the best way of life so to sum this up plato begins his dialogues in the midst of actual concerns begins his dialogues in the midst of actual concerns they are not technical they're not addressed to specialists And that, of course, is what gives them much of their power. That's what gives them much of their power. That then leads to the next question. If the dialogues are not technical, what are the standards of knowledge by which Plato judges? What are the standards of knowledge by which he judges the adequacy of somebody's views about courage or justice? What are the standards of knowledge by which he, dis- he figures out ultimately the adequacy of his own understanding? That's my next topic. <laughs> They're basically the standards of ordinary knowledge taken very, very seriously. <laughs> They're basically the standards of ordinary knowledge taken very, very seriously. Again, this is something with which you may well disagree and are free to disagree. And in time, may be able to show, or perhaps even immediately, why you're right and I'm wrong. What are the standards of knowledge he uses? They're basically the standards of ordinary knowledge taken very seriously. That's the first point. They are also the standards you uncover when you examine what separates the knowledge of skilled artisans from the rest of us. That's the second element. The standards you uncover when you examine what separates the knowledge of skilled artisans from the rest of us. So Plato's goal... is to explore deep issues by taking one's lead from ordinary knowledge and then seeking to know the issues he's examining at least as well as artisans know their art. That's one reason the dialogues discuss the arts so frequently. That's one reason why the arts... Shoemaking, weaving, are his constant examples. So, an examination begins with ordinary knowledge and ordinary opinions about the question being examined, say, justice in the Republic, or the other dialogues I mentioned. One looks, first of all, for what is non-contradictory and what is clear, so there's no obfuscation. What is non-contradictory and what is clear, so there's no obfuscation. And then one also looks, in order to know something, one also looks for what is precise, precise, precise. That is to say, an understanding that has nothing extraneous. Precise, nothing extraneous. The way a good carpenter doesn't leave excess material dragging on the ground or jutting out from a table. And then one looks for what is sufficient. That is an understanding that is complete that leaves nothing out of the subject, the way that a good architect doesn't forget to include doors in a building, or a roof, or as many of them do, lots of other things. So clarity, non-contradiction, sufficiency, and precision are the standards for knowing that Plato employs in the dialogues. His model for knowledge is ordinary understanding, though pushed all the way, and the arts. It is not, it is not a separate fancy theory of knowledge. It is not a separate fancy technical theory of knowledge. But of course, it's not everything goes or anything goes. Because it turns out it's difficult to state about something what it is that's central in it that is non-contradictory and clear and state this in a sufficient and a precise manner. Next topic, Plato's subject and the one that maybe is especially important for this question of his relevance and the relevance of the Republic, Plato's subject is precisely the ends or the goals that guide the arts, not the arts themselves. His subject, the ends and the goals that guide the arts, not the arts themselves. So for example, not how to restore health. Physicians should know that, although it's not clear that the Greek physicians did, right? Something to remember when one thinks about the arts. Not how to restore health, but rather, Plato's subject, when it must be risked in war, when you need to risk your health in war or, from, or for some other good beauty or knowledge. Not bodily health, but what the true health, the health of the soul, is. Plato is seeking in these dialogues precision and sufficiency and clarity on the model of the arts, but not primarily about how things come about, rather about what things are and what they are for. What things are and what they are for. Health, more than restoring it. This is his orientation for the following reason among others. What things are is more important than how they're produced. Why? Because what things are gives or embodies the goal or purpose of the producing. What things are more important than how they're produced is what they are gives or embodies the goal or the purpose of the producing. That's clear, let's say, again in medicine. Health precedes restoring it. But it's true even of a simple thing such as a table. And now I want to discuss that a bit as we begin to see a little more how complex Plato is. According to what I've said, if you want to make a table, the table is the goal of your constructing the goal of your constructing, the goal of your producing. So it precedes the actual work. It precedes the carpenter's actual work in importance. The goal precedes it in importance and precedes it intellectually. All tables are more or less the same in some respects, but they differ in others. Should it be a lavishly-made table that's good for large numbers and impressive feasts? Let's say the kind you see, if any of you ever watch this show, Downton Abbey. Huge tables, impressive feasts, a certain kind of table, right? Or should it be a small table in a bank better for concentrating on counting your money? Or should it be a table designed for holding and placing religious objects? Or a table best designed for writing your books and papers? Or for giving talks? Or a table best designed for spreading out your maps in wartime? (laughs) If you've ever looked at old movies or newsreels of the Second World War, they lay out the maps, actual maps, not digital maps, They lay out the maps and pour over them. Whatever the similarity in the structure of tables, and for this you could substitute anything else as well, but that's my example. Whatever the similarity in the structure of tables, their shape and their size and their embellishments vary. The structure, in other words, as I said, is modified by the goals, the purposes that guide use and guide construction. The purpose is modified by the goals that guide the use and guide the construction. The connection between goal and structure, goal and form, The connection between goal and form is especially significant to Plato. You can see this in Book 10 of The Republic if you really question and examine his discussion of poetry there and of the arts. So the point is that nothing that we make or produce stands fully on its own. Nothing we make or produce stands fully on its own, even something ostensibly as simple as a table. Plato's interested in exploring all of this. Moreover, next point, no single goal stands fully on its own either even something as simple as using a table. Why? Because the use of things points, the use of things points, as we just saw, to questions of moderation, beauty, wealth, piety, war, learning. To put this more broadly, the goal of anything is connected to the way of life as we organize it. The goal of anything is connected to the way of life as we organize it. A good example of this, and again, Plato means to explore all of the issues involved in this. A good example, another good example in the Republic itself, is the complex and difficult discussion with Polemicus in Book 1, maybe the most important, I'm sure you'll challenge me on this, of the three discussions. Not the most exciting, maybe, that's Thrasymachus, but in a way the most revealing and important. One question raised in this discussion with Polemicus in book one is this. What does justice or a just man know that an artisan does not know? What does a just man know that an artisan does not know? Why does a just man know, in fact, that an artisan does not know much better? The implication, I think, in the discussion is that what the just man knows, or what the prudent statesman knows, or perhaps what the philosopher knows, what they know, or know better at least, is the ranking of ends, the ranking of purposes and their interrelations. Not how to make a coat, not how to guard a safe, not how to achieve victory. The artisan, in each case, knows that better. But how best to distribute materials for these activities. In wartime, let's say, when they are scarce, Should they be distributed publicly? Should they be distributed privately? Should we go to war at all? And so on. Or whether, in fact, we should seek something higher and more virtuous. To put this somewhat more concretely in terms of his political discussions in the Republic, democracies rule of the equal and free, And oligarchies, rule of the wealthy few. And aristocracies, rule of the virtuous. And tyrannies, rule of one for pleasure. And theocracies. Each of these regimes or ways of life uses and shapes resources, uses and shapes resources for different things and distributes these things and resources differently. So the key question, individually and politically, therefore, is what goods in what order should guide me? What goods in what order should guide me? What goods in what order should guide us? Ultimately, as I've said, this even tells us a lot about questions that might seem as simple as what tables and houses and other implements are. Plato, in a certain way, takes you along a dizzying path where what first seems simple and obvious is elevated to these issues and complexities. Hence, the question, what is happiness and the common good truly? That's the question. And again, Plato tries to help us know this, or at least examine it, with a precision, sufficiency, and clarity, at least to the level of a craftsman or a professional, a difficult, but not impossible goal. Next topic. Well, what does he discover about such matters? What does he discover about such matters? I should say something about that. And that's my next topic. One thing to remember by way of preface is that Plato's discoveries may be true But that doesn't mean they're the complete truth. They may be true, but they may not be the whole truth, as they say when you are sworn in to testify. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, implying that they are three different things. Plato's discoveries may be true, but they may not be the whole or complete truth. And they may not be presented in a way that is nothing but the truth meaning they're presented in this complex and difficult manner. They may also be truths that are nonetheless not absolute. Truth need not mean absolute, undoubtable certainty. And it's not Plato's intention, I think, that truth mean absolute, undoubtable certainty. Plato's obviously not a relativist. I don't know that anyone would call him that. But he's not an absolutist in our sense either. Not by way of preface, also, challengeable, of course, as everything I say is. The central discovery, the central discovery Plato makes on this path through his examinations. The central discovery is that human ends and goals centrally involve speech and reason. Centrally involve speech and reason. That's what is distinctive about us, or that's what's distinctive about human beings. Reason means mathematical type deduction, of course but primarily it means the dividing and combining and comparing that happens in ordinary speech. The dividing, combining, comparing, that happens almost immediately in ordinary speech. Philosophy in Plato is largely taking this implicit distinguishing and synthesizing, and making it explicit and fully working it through and fully working it through. This centrality of speech and reason is relevant even for the way we human beings enjoy physical and other goods. This is true in Plato, as it's even perhaps more obviously true in Aristotle, let's say, in the ethics. The centrality of reason or speech is relevant even for the way we human beings enjoy physical and other goods, health, wealth, knowledge, action, love, beauty, pleasure. Why? Because this enjoyment itself involves distinguishing, combining, ordering, ranking, judging, and measuring. Chief here, in this question of what is good in its connection to the discovery of the centrality of speech or reason, chief here, of course, is philosophical questioning itself, philosophical examining itself. It's the primary thing, if you can attain it, because it's the fullest use of our distinctive capacity, reason, and it's also an, an adequate use of our other powers. Exercise properly the virtue of reason is wisdom. And that's clearly enough the standpoint of the republic. The superior justice and happiness of the philosophic way of life. This proves to be, surprisingly, not so surprisingly for us because we've been living with Plato for 2,500 years, but surprisingly, in fact, this proves to be the most just way of life, but also significant in the link between our goals and ends and reason is practical or ethical virtue. You see this especially in Plato's Laws and Statesmen, his other two great political dialogues. You see it also in books two, three, and four of the Republic. What's ethical virtue? It's the reasonable use of the soul in relation to the goods and passions we usually desire and experience. A reasonable use of the soul in relation to the goods and passions we usually desire and experience. So several of the dialogues discuss virtue. The Laches on courage, the Carmides on moderation, the Euthyphro on piety, the Theages on wisdom, the Mino and Protagoras on virtue generally, the Gorgias on justice, as well as the laws and statesmen and republics. Now, to understand virtue, to understand the reasonable enjoyment of the goods and passions such as wealth and pleasure and beautiful things and friends and confidence, to understand the reasonable enjoyment of such goods and passions, to understand that one needs to explore not only reason, but also our other powers or the rest of the soul. And clarifying the soul is a second key element in Plato. The second central discovery, along with the centrality of speech or reason, is this clarification of the human soul generally. In the Republic, you see this in Plato's discussions of eros, or love, or desire, and of spiritedness, Thumas. The great exploration of love in all of philosophy is Plato's Symposium. The virtuous or proper enjoyment of it is moderation, ranging from the ordinary desires to proper love of the beautiful, proper love of the beautiful. And the beautiful itself is explored in still another dialogue, the so-called greater hippias. The republic itself in books three and four is the great discussion of spiritedness, the great discussion of spiritedness the other basic element of our passions that we sometimes overlook today. Because we concentrate, we overlook it because we concentrate so much on filling desire or on seeing everything as something we can calculate in an economic market or as seeing everything as ultimately done from self-interest. Spiritedness is often overlooked for that reason. Spiritedness, as Plato describes it, and in a way Aristotle too, spiritedness is the home of passions such as anger, including righteous or proper anger. It's the home of pride. It's the home of the protection and defense of your own your particular family, your particular friends, your particular country, what belongs to you. Spiritedness defends the self and the integrity of the self and its virtuous courage. Spiritedness and courage, therefore, sometimes clash with immediate interests in favor of the integrity of the self that has interests. So a life of virtue is a life of substantive happiness and Plato begins to work this out and Aristotle follows him by thinking through the elements of the human soul in addition to the centrality of speech or reason. Next point. Justice, as the republic makes clear in book four, is central among these practical virtues. What is justice? What is justice? Justice is the proper order of things. As he says, Socrates, each doing what it should, each doing its own each doing what nature suits it for. Justice is the proper order of things, each doing what it should to bring about the fullest end. You might think of justice as ordering or connecting or organizing all the members of a team so that they will achieve victory. This means that you need talent on the team, of course, but it might also mean the restriction, the restriction of the full use of someone's individual talent so that it better fits the team in order to achieve the victory. The best shooter can't take all the shots if the team is actually going to win. Still the best shooter, however. This example indicates that individual good and common good do not align perfectly. They don't align perfectly. The fullest political or moral excellence is the fullest contribution to a community that organizes the fullest virtue, statesmanship, founding regimes, war. But this common excellence may restrict individual interest or individual excellence in art, in love, even in war. Now, to continue this and then move to the next large point. The Republic explores in depth and subtly, of course, the significance of this split between individual and common, and it explores it again and again, most notably in the so-called noble lie or beautiful lie. In fact, in general, The republic shows extreme versions of things that one needs in every successful political community. The republic shows, displays extreme versions of practices or institutions that one needs in every successful political community. All communities need some lesser version of the noble lie. The noble lie. Is that we are all brothers of the soil, as if we popped up literally from the soil. And the second part of the noble lie is that those who rule do so with perfect legitimacy. We're all exactly where we're supposed to be. That's not possible, either that we're all exactly what we're supposed to be, where we're supposed to be. And of course it's not the case that we all pop up literally from this particular piece of land. But we all need something like that because we all need to defend this particular group and this particular people and therefore have some kind of tie to them, the extreme version of which is the noble lie. And we all need to believe it's legitimate to follow these lawmakers and executives rather than those. And the republic is the extreme version of that, the ones who are there and only the ones who are there deserve to be there. We all need something like the rule of those who are virtuously devoted to the city, to the community, to the country, and the republic gives the beautiful extreme example of that in the education in books two and three. We all need citizens to have dedication to the community, and the extreme version of that is shown in book five of the Republic. We are are nothing but common beings, with no individuality at all. We all need some censorship, and not only individual license. We all need some rule of the prudent and practically wise, and not only equal consent the republic brings out these needs starkly by showing us extreme versions of how to meet them. And that is one of its chief lessons about political life. The split between individual and common good becomes most clear in the republic in the following fact. The fullest individual justice is the proper order of the parts of the soul. And that's the philosophic life, not any practical life, however great. But the philosophical life is never simply a political life as the apology makes clear and as the Republic does too. The split between individual and common good is one reason that we can't have perfect or absolute rules for obtaining happiness, like a cookbook recipe or an unchanging set of laws, because there will always be some conflict. Another reason why absolute rule is limited is that one might lack the skill or the materials to be the best or the highest. So, the best for oneself is not the best simply. As I said, both Plato and Aristotle believe in guiding standards, but hardly ever in unbridgeable laws or actions that always must be followed in every circumstance. Aristotle gives the example of athletic or gymnastic training. I might know the training measure that would produce an Olympian, an Olympic athlete in some area, but such a training regimen would kill me, right? Or at least harm someone with ordinary talents. The net result would be less excellent than it could be. But that doesn't change the fact that the better athlete and training is in fact better and therefore is the model. The deepest reason why you can't have a kind of cookbook, absolute recipe, knowledge about how to live, is this. If the fullest life is philosophical exploration, there is always something open or unfinished in our knowledge. But that doesn't change the fact that Plato argues the philosophic life is the most just way of life. So there is clear guidance about what is best, the topic with which we began, and therefore about happiness. There's clear guidance about fitting together individual and common good. But there's no certainty. So, and this is my final point, I hope I've shown you something of Plato's supreme relevance, I would say, and that of the republic in particular, namely Plato's contribution to understanding happiness, but also showing you something of how and what one might know about the question of happiness, namely the priority of speech or reason and virtue, without, however, this knowledge pretending to absolute certainty or absolute perfection. Thank you.